our leaders and things like that so that we aren't swept away, as the text says, that we are not swept away with the godless, uh, but, the, but that the Lord would spare us. That's what always, you know, I don't want to say always, but as we are going through the Old Testament, it's really curious and interesting how many times a nation is cursed because their king was wicked. I mean, you have the, these, these people who would say, well, we were just following the instructions of our king. Why would you blame us, God? And uh, reading the Old Testament is really a wonderful blessing. It really is encouraging and it, it, it strengthens us because there was a remnant within all of these, the, these times. There was a remnant, there was a faithful, and rarely ever were they in the majority Rarely ever did they enjoy places of comfort and, uh, and, and joy, um, but the Lord, um, the Lord kept them in his, in his care by them bearing their crosses. So, um, that being said, Tuesdays at 2.30, uh, wonderful Bible study. Uh, if, if you can join us, we'd, we'd love to have you. Yep, amen. Well said. He said it's a great Bible study. He loves it. It's very easy to take a nap in, he says. <coughs> Wait, that's not good. Um, okay, we are in Proverbs 16, and here we have, um, uh, we're going to just kind of keep clicking through some of these passages. We have a controversial passage in this proverb. Uh, only if you uh, misunderstand it, misread it. That's usually how it is in the scriptures. Um, it's our sinful flesh. The scriptures are clear and easy to understand, um, but it is our sinful flesh uh, that doesn't understand, that wants to make things difficult. Um, but it is by patient learning and hearing the word and praying for wisdom and understanding. Are there any Bible stories that come to mind to, for you that maybe are particularly encouraging for you when you come across Bible passages that are hard to understand? Were there stories in the New Testament where God's faithful said, this, I don't get it. Help me, Lord. Any? Any come to mind? Huh? Every other page. Every other page, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was, there was good old Nicodemus, right, who came at, at night and, and he says, tell me. What, how do I, what's going on? And, and Jesus said, oh, goody, here, let me explain it to you very, very clearly, okay? Now, Jesus did what? I mean, he said things clearly, but Nicodemus was like, enter a, my mother's womb a second time, Jesus? Just tell me plainly. <laughs> make it easy. But over and over again, the Lord does not make it easy as we would call it, easy. Chris, you had one? Well, I was just going to say in general in the book of John, in those first several chapters, Jesus just talks over and over about how he and the Father are one. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. <laughs> yeah. They do everything together. But the wording that he uses and the phrasing and whatnot, I think it's really hard to understand. And it's sort of murky. And mm. I think it's, um, it's tough to kind of yep. you know, yep. wrap your head around it. Yep, it absolutely is. Uh, this is a, a topic we call the perspicuity of Scripture. It's a wonderful passage 
that uh, it's this teaching that the scriptures themselves say uh, the word of God is, 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 is easy, it's plain, it can be grasped by a child, but the perspicuity of scripture, it means our sinful flesh, our fallen logic, our, it is our fault that the scriptures are wonderful word you use, murky or hard to understand. Um, and Jesus, right, it's almost like he will go at lengths. It, it, it appears that Jesus will go to lengths to hide the truth, to hide things. Um, even in the, in the Old Testament, there's the, the psalm that says, or it was one of the Proverbs we've read recently, it is the glory of the Lord that he conceals things and the glory of kings to search them out. So there is a little bit of studying that needs to take place. There is some, some contemplation, some digesting of God's word. There's also the story on the road to Emmaus. We are told there were disciples walking together, talking about the events that happened, and Jesus appeared to them. But Jesus hid himself. And he said, hey guys, what are you, what are you talking about? Did he not know what they were discussing? Of course he did. You know, could he have just come right out and said, hey, it's me. Look, looky here. No, but what did he do? We are told he led them in a Bible study. <laughs> this is how Jesus likes, to, likes for the Holy Spirit to work. He was patient. He waited. I mean, first he said, oh, you of slow heart. <laughs> You morons! <laughs> I don't think it was that rough. Yeah, Steve. Well, if you look in Mark chapter 4, it says, it's 30, verse 33, it says, With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples explained everything. Yep, yep. And even when he explained it, how many times did they still go? Jesus says, oh, you. <laughs> but he, he allows it, right? He teaches, and he also allows people, allows us to, he, he allows the Holy Spirit to work, right? Explaining things and teaching. But if you don't contemplate, if you don't, as the disciples, come to the Lord and ask, uh, that's a wonderful passage, uh, that he is, he is a teacher. It is a good thing. Uh, and also, uh, the parables, that's an interesting thing too. You know, why did the disciples, why did they need explaining, right? We usually talk about parables and say, you know, if, if, if I ask the confirmands what, or in general, what is a parable? And they say, well, it, it's a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's, it's to help clear up some things. Well, why did they have to ask Jesus to explain it? Did the parables clear things up? Not really. We are also told that he told parables so that those who hear would not hear and those who see could not see. Part of the role of the parables is to confuse that if you don't live by faith, right, the kingdom of God is like blank. If you approach the kingdom of God as you do the kingdom of man, you will be lost. It will not make any sense. You will be confounded. But if you approach the kingdom of God by faith, if you approach it first and you are a student, then you can rejoice. Then you see, then it's of wonderful joy because you see that the kingdom of God doesn't 
doesn't work like the kingdoms of man. Oh, what a relief. This is wonderful. This is good news. So the parables are a blessing for those who, who believe. Okay, uh, so with that being said, we have a passage today that on the face value seems a little, a little strange, but uh, we're going we're gonna to delve into it a little bit. The Hebrew helps us out with it a little bit. And of course, what else is the greatest guide to help on Bible passages that are difficult? The rest of the Bible. Imagine that. Excellent. Yes. Okay. Chapter 16 of Proverbs. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. So commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Um, here, this is a really, really, I mean, Solomon just is jumping right in it. And they have this division here in Proverbs 16. Uh, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. This is Solomon saying, look, all throughout the history of the scriptures, and as we see even in the New Testament, the plans of the heart, the king, the man, plans and thinks he's doing one thing, but what is actually happening? God, the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So you have in the Old Testament, just one easy example of this, you have uh, King Cyrus, right? Who's this pagan king that thinks he's showing his might and his strength. He thinks by letting and actually supporting God's people, the, the, the Israelites and the Jews, going back to Jerusalem and to rebuild it and to provide it, the king thinks, hey, this is, this is to my glory. Everyone's going to be impressed with this. But what was God doing? He was bringing his people back. He was using this pagan king to fulfill a promise he made in the years previous. So this proverb speaks to this idea that, oh, a New Testament way to think about this maybe, or even Old Testament roots. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. So while the wicked think they are devising plans, even in the time of persecution for the church, they think they're devising plans. They think they're destroying the church by killing Christian after Christian. And what are they doing? They're making the church grow, right? I've, I've, I've been this, this picture of the church as, as water on a table. Have any of you heard this before? That Christianity is like water that's spilled on a table and the persecution is when someone tries to clean, clean the, the water off the table by, slap, by, by hitting the water, right? By slapping it down. And what happens? It spreads and it grows. And the times of the greatest persecution are the times that the church grew the most. And I think we can say within our generation and a couple generations before us, the time that Christianity, Christianity has suffered terrible persecution more than any other religions in the last uh, history of the world. Um, but in our nation specifically, where we're not persecuted for being Christians, what has happened to the church? Apathy. Apathy, it's membership shrinks. So here, this proverb is wonderful. Um, and it's also a reminder to us that God uses all things for the good of those who believe to his people. 
So even though the plans of the heart, you know, we think we're making plans, we think we know exactly how our life is going to go, and God says, thanks for the input, I appreciate your advice, but I think I got it under control. <laughs> and, but he does say, pray, ask, you will receive, knock. The Lord does, does ask us, does tell us to, to pray to him. But to remember this, even Solomon, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Any other New Testament examples of this that come to mind? We have, of course, the reference to to Joseph and his brothers, which you meant for evil, God used for good. Okay. Oh boy, if if we can just if we can just kill him, we'll put an end to this. Yeah. And then also, do y'all remember Caiaphas's words? Better that one man should die than the, you know, yeah. something that, than the whole Yeah, than the whole nation, nation suffer. Yeah. And then also the crowd, what did they yell? Okay? And they said, "Let his blood be on us." Right? They said it and they meant one thing, but indeed God used it for his it was the tongue, right? The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. I mean, these are just, these things are just, they're, I don't know how I want to say it. They make the hair on the back of your neck stand up in a good sense. Um, it's a beautiful thing to know that we are protected, that we, we, have, we have, God's got your back. It's okay. You know, when you said crucifixion, I mean, I, I think that's just, that's the penultimate sign of it. That's, that's the place of it where everybody thinks they're, and, and Jesus says this, men will arrest you and put you on trial thinking they're doing a service to God. Right? And we also think of terrorists and uh, Islamic, you know, fundamentalists that, that say, hey, you know, if we kill, kill uh, infidels, we, we get a reward. And it's really the faithful Christians who get the reward uh, when they are martyred for the faith. Well, the cross as well, because the cross, <clears throat> the Romans had that set up as a, as a thing of death and destruction, yeah. which became the symbol of Christianity. Mm -hmm. and, and Christians were called Christians as a, as a derogatory remark. And the, the early Christians said, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Which ironically enough is also how the, the name Lutheran got attached to us. Uh, in the Reformation, the Lutherans, does anybody remember what the, the Lutherans were named, what they were called before they were Lutherans? Yeah, the evangelicals. We were called the evangelicals. And then they said as a term of, that was a term of derision, but then yet even too, uh, to, be, to be tied to the name of Luther was considered embarrassing, considered derogatory remark. And Luther himself too, he's kind of like, why would you want to be named, like, why would you want my name? <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, he himself said, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a sorry sack of maggots. Uh, why would you want to be named after me? But of course he relented. And uh, that's, that's what we have. It's, it's kind of fun. Uh, so someone calls you a, a derogatory remark, use it to your advantage. All the ways of man, verse 2, right? I think this relates, of course, to, to verse 1. 
Uh, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. They thought they were doing a service to God by crucifying Jesus, but the Lord knows. And so it was a curse to them. Uh, uh, um, and uh, indeed, uh, a joy for, for God's people. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. A, a very good verse uh, and an encouraging one. There really aren't a whole lot of rules placed on that, um, but a daily reminder for us in our vocation and what we do. Um, you know, keeping these previous two verses in mind um, helps us right, to commit our work to the Lord each day, uh, to leave it in his hands, to trust him, to do what do we say, live by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight, right? Okay, now the controversial verse, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now, the reason this verse causes some difficulty is because it seems as if the Lord makes the wicked for the day of trouble. Uh, there is a, a belief that uh, called double predestination where the Lord chooses people to go to hell and regardless of uh, what happens to them, that is their end. You cannot change that. Um, but this verse, verse four, doesn't fit the context. That understanding doesn't fit the language nor the context. Remember, we were just told that the Lord uses even the wicked right? The, the plans of the mouth, he uses it for good. Here, it's just restating that. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, right? Even the wicked for the day of trouble. Two ways to look at this. First, you can see that the wicked, that God even uses the wicked for that last day, that even the sins perpetrated against you, the wickedness that the wicked may do, um, God uses that for the day of trouble. God uses that, right, to bring judgment. God uses that not to bring judgment on you, but God uses even the wickedness of the world to preserve and protect his people. So even the wicked, right, for the day of trouble. The Hebrew, the connection in it, it's not so tight that it's talking about the people themselves. Oh, God made these people so he can destroy them. That doesn't make sense in the context, nor linguistically. Um, second, another way to understand this, and this, this verse has spent a lot of spilled ink on it. There aren't a whole lot who consider this a passage that says God has made wicked people just so he can destroy them. Another, the second way to look at it is that who is not wicked? Is there anybody made, of course, beside Jesus? Is there anybody who is not wicked? No, no. So, so Luther, as an Old Testament lecturer of this passage, he said, look, uh, and this was early on, this was early Luther, as he's a lecturer and Old Testament guy. Um, he, he said, look, the Lord, once man falls into sin, the Lord doesn't stop making man, right? He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't let wickedness, right, prevent him from making everything. That he still forms, he still produces life, even though it is fallen. So it's, the Lord 
the Lord uses the fallen things of this world even for his purposes. Does that make sense? It's kind of a, it, like I said, there's, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled on this because it gives the impression of a double predestination that there are some people, I mean, I mean, you might know such people, you think this, that God just made them to be a pain in your butt. <laughs> uh, that they are just there, that God created them, they're wicked, and he just created them so he could destroy them. That's, that's a false picture and view of God, right? Because we are told multiple places in scriptures, even today in our readings in church, we hear that God does not desire the death of any but that all would repent and live. So this passage, if you use the other passages of scriptures, helps guide you on this. But if you just take that passage as it is in the English, it's easy to tell. God's not talking about double predestination. But you take it in English and you have this notion that God is not a a good God, that he creates uh, people just so he can destroy them. If you think that, then you might get led astray by this passage. Okay? Proverbs 16, verse 4. Uh, Worth our time to weigh and to consider. But taking it into context, right? That's the important thing of the scriptures. Uh, When you buy property, what what does the real estate agent tell you? You say, I want to buy some investment property. What do they say? Don't do it. No. (laughs) What do they say? Location. So in the Bible, what do we say? Context, context, context. You take a, po- take a passage out of context, right? And you can do with it just about what you, what you want. Yeah, yeah. Okay, any, uh, any questions or further diving on this? It, it, it's a... Uh, If you're not familiar with the teaching of double predestination, this may just seem like an exercise in futility, um, but uh, it is an important teaching nonetheless because it has to do with the character of God and what he does. Okay, Uh, let's see, did what the Lutheran study Bible, yep, talks about it a little bit. Um, Okay. Well, we, we, I, if there are no questions, I think we can go forward. Boy, that's pretty good. This topic has plagued the church for uh, <laughs> generations. You guys got it. Awesome. So here we go. Uh, verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord... One turns away from evil. Now this is this is quite quite interesting here. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Now, you know, in in Lutheranism we have this wonderful gift of the distinction between law and gospel. But this, like anything, any other gift, can be abused, can be misused. It can, it can lead some people 
saying that the law shows us our sin. The law guides us. The law does all this, but it doesn't help us to accomplish it. The gospel is what helps us to accomplish this, and this is true. But this can be abused, right, according to passages such as this. The fear of the Lord turns one away from evil. If one of my children is reaching or let's say my, let's say one of my kids who can drive uh, is, is driving their car and I'm with them in the seat next to them and they're speeding towards a cliff like Toons is the driving cat and I say, stop! Did I turn her away from evil? Is that, is that, is that law? Or gospel? Yeah, it's what, right? But that's what it's saying, right? The fear of the Lord. So the Christian, the new man, right, in us, can hear the law and rejoice. And this is what the Bible does teach us. It does say. But the distinction and the difficulty and the problem is, is that we also have our old, our fallen Adam, our fallen Eve, if I want to be gender inclusive. Um, our fallen flesh is always there with us. So yet, even though we know the law doesn't help us to attain righteousness, it doesn't help us to do it. Indeed, the new man in us, the new Adam, the Christ in us, loves the law and looks at the law of God and says, oh, I see this will lead me toward life, goodness. So it's a wonderful joy. It is a gift. It is a treasure, this distinction between law and gospel. But like all of God's gifts, it can be misused. And there are Lutheran denominations that say, oh, the law doesn't help us in, in, in salvation, so it's really not that important. We don't need the law. All we need to do, which this is ironic, all we need to do is love. We don't need to be told, right? There is no, they take the passages of the scriptures like everything in Christ is yes, and they say, well, that means that homosexuality is no longer a sin. That means abortion is not always a sin, right? Or all these things that what we would say liberal, Protestant, Lutheran church bodies will say things like, oh, it doesn't matter. We, don't, we aren't moved in salvation by the law, so we don't need the law. All we need is the gospel. All we need to do is hear of the goodness of Christ, and we will automatically do all of this. Yes? Without the law, how would you know what God <laughs> Yes. Yep. Yep. That's right. So you need to know the standard, or what's the point of any of it? And they, of course, would answer, well, the point is love. Can't you just be loving? Why, why would you say no to somebody? That's so unloving. Well, if you're going off a cliff, <laughs> it's the most loving thing to do, the most life-preserving thing. Yes? Arrogant in heart. What do you, what do you, what do you think? <laughs> That's why I'm asking you the question. Uh, anybody else? What Arrogant of heart. What do we... 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. Remember, we can we can look around uh, um, Proverbs. Sometimes the Proverbs are closely connected, and sometimes they're not. I'm gonna I'm gonna build it off the context. I think here a little bit, and looking at this, right? Uh, everyone who's arrogant in heart. Well, what what have we just been told? We have just been told to commit our work to the Lord. We have we have been told that everything works for its purpose. We've been told all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. I think I would go to this verse. You become your own God. Yeah, arrogant in heart, you become your own God. And it, 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 it's really kind of curious that it, that it, it takes it even to the, to the heart, right? Because even some of these things, right, the plans of the heart, right, belong to man. So <laughs> I just tried to scroll on this. You know, when I was, when I was in college... Back in the hinter days, we had overhead projectors. And I was going to Tarrant, or, uh, North Central Texas College, community college. And uh, it was really interesting. It was in Louisville. And we had some uh, Middle Easterner students there, Middle Eastern students there. And they obviously had not been in America very long. And we were doing these presentations in this class about where are you from, right? Where, where are you at? Draw a map and all this kind of stuff. And so they, they, uh, they did a map of where they were from in the Middle East, some small country or something, I, I, I don't remember. I listened very well, though. And um, they had an overhead projector, and they put the transparency on it, and it went up there. And they, they had you know, all their country and the countries around it. And some of the students in my class, they say, oh, well, why don't you color in, because we had markers, and said, why don't you color in which country is yours? And he said, okay. And he went up to the wall, and he... <laughs> It was great, all of that. So now, coming back 30 years later, it's coming back to me. Come on, scroll, these darn screens. Um, sorry, that, that just popped into my head. Um, I think we can take that right at the very beginning in verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer is from Lord. So verse 5, I think being arrogant of heart, of course, is going to involve the first commandment. You think you're God. Because remember, in the first commandment, the target that God is going after is not Buddha. He's not going after money. He's not going after false gods, right? You shall have no other gods before me. That commandment is not focused on other gods. It's focused on the heart. That's what the first commandment is about. Because God gives us all things for our good, and it's our heart that turns them into gods. So being arrogant in heart first, I would say, is who's going to be punished in the last day? Oh, come on, Christians. Who's going to be punished when Jesus returns? The unbelievers. Are we? No. That's a day of joy, right? Dad's coming home, and he's got a bag full of souvenirs, right? It's not... (laughs) Today, I, I talk about the doorbell in uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And the family arrives, and they ring the doorbell. Ding dong! Ding dong! And just gets deeper and lower, right? Like, terror has arrived. That's not judgment day for the Christian. It's a joyous doorbell when the Lord comes. So, first off, we can say that the arrogant in heart is the unbeliever. They think 
they're in control of their lives. They think that's pride, uh, arrogance. Um, there is nothing that can change their, their ways. I heard somebody say they're always right. Um, there is no repentance. There's no humbleness. There's no willingness to be corrected and reproofed by God's word. I would say that would be arrogant of heart. And I don't know that the arrogance of heart is always necessarily going to manifest itself in ways that we can say, oh, you're arrogant. Uh, Some of the nicest people and the kindest people I have met have been very arrogant. I I love this person because look how sad they are. Well, look at look at how pitiful they are, right? And, and they then live lives of, of charity and caring for people and, and, and love, but yet they're arrogant in heart. Well, Jesus even said in the last day, many will come to me and go, Lord, Lord, look what I did. Mm-hmm. And he says, I don't know you. Because it's all about what them, and it's an I statement, look what I, I yeah. did. It's not about yeah. anything else. Yeah, that's the sheep and the goats, right? Matthew 25. Lord, when did we not do all this stuff for you? Look at, look at all we did. Yeah, good question. Arrogant of heart. Chew on it, too. Um, but most especially, it's, it's this idea of, you know, unbelief. The arrogant heart is, a, is an abomination to the Lord. Verse 6, okay, we talked about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if if you could do it, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not even non-believer, believer, but believer or Christian mm-hmm. still really can't have steadfast love and faithfulness to atone for anything. Right. Even with Jesus, steadfast love and faithfulness. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and that steadfast love is a that's a really um, common and wonderful word in the Old Testament, uh, speaking of God's love. You know, kind of like in, in Greek, you've heard, I'm sure your pastors probably bored you with sermons about four types of love, the four different words of love in Greek. You know, uh, and this, this one particular word in Hebrew, steadfast love, is, is, is the love of God. It's... it's uh, it's this uh, Hasid, I think, um, the steadfast love of the Lord and faithfulness, iniquities atoned for. Yep, of course. Yeah, and that is the promise of the law, right? And that's what Jesus says when, when uh, people come to him and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I've, you know, the, 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 the tax collector and the Pharisee when they go to the temple, right? And the Pharisee says, I've done all this, I've done all this, I've done all this, I've done all this. And, and, and Jesus says, no, he's, he's not justified. But the tax collector says, Lord, have mercy on me, right? Mercy means you desire that steadfast love. You desire to be atoned for. You want to be brought to be one with God again. Mm-hmm. Is it, is it mine or is it Christ? Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Iniquity is atoned for by Christ. Yep. Very good. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Everyone would have looked at the Pharisee and said, what? Yeah. Hey, daughter, marry this guy. Hey, son, be like this guy. And Jesus said, well, if you want to go to hell. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Oh, we know that. Yeah. Okay. So, and then we say, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. Well, Jesus said that. Well, we, we believe this, but, you know, they just have a problem because the Jews are chosen people. And so yeah. they have a hard time thinking yeah. they're going to. Yeah. Because if they're doing all these things in the Old Testament, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, uh, yeah. If, uh, come to the Tuesday Bible study, right? Well, we study the, the Old Testament and, and the Jews, and, and the prophets were telling them always, hey, guys, it's not about outward behavior, it's about the heart. Doesn't matter how good you are. And so this is why then the Jews hated Jesus. That's why they crucified him. Because Jesus said, you know, you, right, if you, you, want to, you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, be perfect. And the Jews said, you're, you're telling me I'm not perfect? Look at, look at, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they say, they say look, we, we're your chosen people, right? They throw it back at God. And they, they assumed wrongly that God chose them because they were so great. No, 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 no. The, the picture of God choosing the, the, Jewish, the Jewish people, the Israelites, is a picture of his undeserved love, not deserved love. And Jesus said, look, if, if, you, don't, if you don't believe in me, you're of the father, the devil. And that's why they were offended, because they, they, had, they had their patriotism. They had what we call the law, right? So no matter how good, right? And that's why, that's why Jesus in the parables, Jesus would bring up somebody who was wealthy, somebody who was the, the, the picture of perfection, and Jesus says, they are not my people. So it's a very good question, and, and, and it, it takes some, some time to, to read Jesus' own words and his reaction to, to his fellow people. And you know, Jesus was a Jew. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Chris. So the entire Old Testament points forward to Jesus, like you've talked many times, and I think they've always said all of the verses that you read and see and put them together point exactly toward Jesus. So when mm-hmm. the people in the New Testament rejected them, they were rejecting all of the old Jewish writers to whom God had prophesied and that yeah. yeah. And that's the story throughout the Old Testament too, is it's the repeated rejection of the prophets. It's a re- repeated rejection of the king, a repeated rejection of God's word. The, 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 what happens in the New Testament, the prophets were all saying, you know, John the Baptist, right? 
the Pharisees and the ruling Jews came out to the Jordan River and they went to John the Baptist and said, hey, you obviously are doing something amazing. We want to be part of it. Baptize us. And John said, oh, what's his wonderful Advent greeting? You brood of vipers. <laughs> and they said, oh, us? Do you know who we are? You know, and, and uh, Jesus said, yeah, John, John spoke the truth because they were so arrogant of heart, they didn't need Jesus. They said, we have Abraham as our father. Jesus said, I can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And that just, I mean, that's why they wanted to murder him. They said, you can't say that about us. And, and, and it, it's the truth. I mean, even now as, as Christians, when we try to speak God's word, wisdom, and law to people, especially our current culture, when we try to say things like what I started off with, marriage is between a man and a woman. What do they do? Uh, they come at us like vipers. I mean, it, I mean they're, they're, they're like the Jews of Jesus' day. They're, they're upright. They're kind. They're respectable. But man, the daggers come out. Anytime we mention something that is, you know, anytime we teach a doctrine or talk about things that you can only ascend to by faith, that's when the claws come out. Because if we can't prove it with science, then they will not believe it. Right? But virgin birth, I mean, that's something we hold by faith. Right? I, can't, I can't prove that in a science experiment to you. Uh, you know, the, the sacrament, right? The body and blood of Jesus, I can't, can't, I can't prove that to you. We, these are things that we Christians, we get to behold them by faith and the devil hates it because the devil can't come and take that faith away from you. He can take science from you. Right? You, can, you can assume that the world is flat all you want. You can come, my club, we have this meeting every Wednesday night, the, the Flat Earthers Club. You can come, right? And you can join it. But once you kind of look at science, you might not be interested in it anymore. But the things we behold by faith, this is why it's important for Christians to know doctrine. The things that you hold on to by faith, nothing can take that from you. Nobody. Not even the devil. But what can we do with it? Virgin birth? Everybody knows that doesn't happen. <laughs> right? The, the doctrine, the faith itself, right? Faith in these promises of God, nobody can steal that from you, but you can, you can give it up. And, and that's the joy of being a Christian. And that's why Christians, as I talked about, you know, slapping the table with water going out, that's why uh, Christians are so in history, they're so joyful to lose their life for the gospel. Because they say, Jesus kept me faithful even in the face of death. I mean, that's pretty cool. What a perspective, you know, what, what is it, you know, what would you die for? You know, what would you die for? Right. And so many people in, in our world, they don't have anything they die for. And, and there is a, a philosopher or, or some thinker who said, uh, you, you who have nothing to die for, I ask you, are you even really alive? 
or are you dead as you stand? Right, it's kind of interesting. So, uh, very good, very good question. Uh, that, that, is, that is something that plagues all of us and all of our hearts, is this, this law and gospel, trusting in the promises of God, yet being assailed by the devil daily with his darts that say, I can prove to you this, I can prove, I can prove, I can prove. And, um, you know, when it comes to the mercy and the love of God, we say, well, sorry, devil, I believe the promises of God more than the threats of you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She also raises it like this. Yeah. And I know this is good, so we'll be able to end on this. Yeah, what does he say? Go for it. Read it nice and loud. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Thank you, Abigail. Absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah, there's some who don't believe. Yeah, it's by yeah. And that's why the 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 book of Romans and actually almost probably 80% of the epistles of Paul's letters are written to the context of what is the relationship between Christianity and this Jewish these Jewish this Jewish heritage? Because when Christianity starts, where does Paul go to preach the gospel whenever he goes to places? He goes to the synagogues. He goes to the Jews. He goes there and he tells them, Jesus is the Messiah. And they say, get the hell out of here. Or they say, tell us more. And this is what the New Testament letters, this is a topic, I mean, the book of Galatians, what Abigail read, the book of Romans, most of these epistles touch on this topic because the, 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 some of those who were Jews, they were saying what? To be a Christian, you had to what? You had to get circumcised. You had to follow dietary restrictions. You had to do all these things. And so this is the question, right, that, that is bugging the church in that, that time. And, and it's, it's the perennial problem of law and gospel. It really, really is. So, yeah, Romans. Thank you, Abigail, again. Um, Romans, but even, I mean, we're reading, uh, what are we reading? We're reading Ephesians and the men's Bible study. Same topic. Galatians, same topic. It's on the, on the surface, it's, oh, um, Jews and Gentile, but underneath it is the law. Were the Jews God's people because they were good and upheld the law? Exactly. Nope never was about how good you are. It's about the goodness of God. Okay, let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that your Son Jesus has come and that he has fulfilled every law. He has 
He has dotted every I. He has crossed every T. But yet we also rejoice that the law is not gone, but now is our friend. We pray, O Lord, we would gladly and joyfully receive your word, that we would repent of our sins, find encouragement in the gospel, and desire to follow you every day of our life. Help us, especially this Advent season, that in our hearts we would prepare for you, and by our actions, our lives would also teach and show others that they too can, in your Son, Jesus Christ, be prepared and ready for your final return. Help us, teach us now by your Holy Spirit, grant us strength each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.